Good evening. It's good to see you. I haven't spoken to an evening congregation for seems like a long time. Um, after we were out in the, the church hall there for six weeks before Christmas for our Christianity Explored course. So it's, it's great to be back and to have this opportunity to, to think with you on God's word for a few minutes this evening. Thank you to Fiona for leading us um, so thoughtfully and helpfully. After this evening's service, I'm going to meet with a bunch of our worship leaders. Um, so that's people like Fiona and the other folks here who take turns in helping to lead our services. And I'll tell you that at the outset because I'd like to encourage you always to be praying for those guys. Uh, those people that you see up at the front uh, leading our services here from time to time. Leading worship is, is a sensitive matter and it's something that requires great spiritual integrity. It's possible to be seduced from that and to end up doing something much, much less than leading God's people in, in genuine worship. We're going to see that in our passage here this evening. Uh, as we come to look again at some stuff here in Kings. I'm conscious as we gather here this evening that some folks maybe haven't uh, been party to this series that, that was running uh, in the earlier part of the autumn. So I thought I'd give you two minutes of a, a recap just to give you some context for where we're at. At some point in Israel's history, after they'd come into the Promised Land, the folks there, the people decided that they would like a king and their motivation for that wasn't particularly good. They simply decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. But God uh, granted them their request and, and gave them a king. And you maybe know of some of the first kings of Israel. Their, their names are quite well known to people who, who know the Bible. Saul, then David, and then Solomon. By the time of Solomon's reign... Uh, things had gone pretty badly off the rails already with kingship and God promised Solomon that he was going to, to divide Israel that it would no longer be one nation under him and last week in chapter 12 of 1 Kings you got to see a little bit of how that actually came about Philip was helping you to think about that stuff we saw there that 12 tribes of Israel rebel against Solomon's son Rehoboam they rebel against his harsh regime. So Rehoboam is left with only two tribes over which he's king in a, in a smaller kingdom now called Judah. Uh, try to stick with this, otherwise the whole thing becomes a bit confusing. So Rehoboam is king of Judah. And the ten tribes that have rebelled and have left become the nation or the kingdom of Israel under the kingship of Jeroboam. So the kingdom's divided. When you read the events of chapter 12, we're given an explanation for that, why that comes about. It's because of Rehoboam's harsh regime. So we're given a, a sense that human actions have played their part. Rehoboam led in such a way that the, the people uh, rebelled against him. But also as we've been reading Kings, we've been learning to, to see that God is always at work. So human actions have played their part. But everything that happened in chapter 12 
we know is an outworking of God's sovereign plan. God had already predicted in chapter 11 that Solomon's kingdom would be divided. Also in chapter 11, he had promised Jeroboam that he would be king over 12, or 10 of the 12 tribes. So always when we're in kings, bear that in mind, that, that even in these very human-looking uh, activities, the sovereign God is working his will and his plans. If you look at these two kingdoms that now emerge, you would say to yourself, well, you wouldn't expect much for Judah under Rehoboam with everything that he showed himself to be in chapter 12, but would have lots of reason to be very positive about this new emerging kingdom of Israel under the kingship of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was appointed by the people to be their spokesperson before the cruel Rehoboam. He was kind of like a new Moses, a guy who was going to lead the people out from a harsh regime of slavery under Solomon and Rehoboam. As soon as they rebelled against Rehoboam, the people had no hesitation in making Jeroboam their king. There was something about this guy that they, they, they loved and responded to. And actually, we've been told that God had promised to bless him. Look back with me to chapter 11, verse 37. God's words to Jeroboam. This is while Solomon is still on the throne. 11, verse 37. However, as for you, I will take you, and you'll rule over all that your heart desires. You'll be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I'll build a dynasty for you as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. It's a wonderful moment, a fresh dawn, a possibility here that a true son of David is going to emerge, one like David, a man after God's own heart. Jeroboam couldn't have been a greater disappointment. At a moment when we dared to dream that, that a new king would, would raise kingship up once more into something, something glorious, we see it plunged deeper than it's ever gone before. Jeroboam's no glorious king. In fact, he ends up becoming the benchmark for all that's bad about kingship in Israel. Let me explain to you for a second how the book of Kings works. What we're going to get in Kings from here on in is an account of each king's reign. Now some of them are quite long, like Solomon's for example, at the start of 1 Kings. Some of them are dead short, only a sentence or two. But usually the account of a king's reign ends with an evaluation of that king, whether they were a good king or a bad king. So let me show you a few of these to, to give you an idea of how this works. If you flick over to, we're, we're learning here about the first king of Israel, uh, Jeroboam. Flick over with me to chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. Chapter 15, 
We're learning here about the second king of Israel, Nadab. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. If you look down there, the next king goes under the name Basha. And we read in verses 33 to 34 an account of his life. In the third year of Asa king of Judah, Basha son of Ahijah became king of all Israel in Tirzah. And he reigned for 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Elah, the fourth king that we read about, he comes under God's judgment just like his father. If you look down to to Zimri, the fifth king, we read about him in chapter 16, verse 19. He dies, and we read that he died, verse 19, because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in the sins he had committed and caused Israel to commit. Omri, the next king we read about, Chapter 16, verses 25 to 26. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sinned more than all of those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. We could go on with some of that, but if you you flick with me right to the end of 2 Kings, we get a summary here, 2 Kings chapter 17, sorry, it's near the end rather than right at the end, Um, a summary here of kingship in Israel, 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 21, when he tore Israel away from the house of David, They made Jeroboam, son of Nabat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. And they are still there. Jeroboam, the the one who who looked like a fresh dawn, a moment of hope for Israel. And in the end, he becomes simply a benchmark for all that's evil and wrong for kingship in Israel. What did he do? What was it about Jeroboam that makes him this this arch-villain in the biblical narrative? Why is it that he becomes uh, the one to whom you compare all bad kings? Well, it's in chapter 12, verse 25, that first passage uh, which Fiona read for us, that we get some idea uh, what it was that, that Jeroboam did. Chapter 12, verses 25 to 33. What Jeroboam does is he establishes a religion to suit himself. He changes the what 
and the where, the who and the when of worship, all to suit his own purposes. The what, the object of worship. He, he creates two golden calves and he says to the people, here, here they are, here are your gods, worship these. We thought this guy was going to be the new Moses, the guy who, who led people out of slavery, but he turns out to be the new Aaron, the one who leads them into idol worship. He changes the what, the object of our worship. He changes the where, creates Bethel and Dan as two new sanctuaries, places where people can come to worship. It's an entirely political gesture. Uh, you'll have picked up when we read in the story. He was worried about his people going down to Israel. He, he was the king in, in a northern part of, of, the, of Israel. Judah was to the south and, and Jerusalem to the south. So what does he do? Well, he decides just to create two new sanctuaries of his own. One in the south of his kingdom and one in the north. Carefully chosen so that people can travel easily to worship in those places. He's changed the what of worship. He's changed the where. He changes the who. Just appoints his own priests. Contravening God's normal practices and commands. And he changes the when. The festivals that God has given his people, he overrides and creates a new festival. Jeroboam has been seduced to create a designer religion. Rather than worshipping the true and living God in the ways that God wants, he uses worship and God to keep himself in power he gives the people what he thinks they want and what he thinks they need. He gives it to them where they want it and who they want and when they want thrown into. Tell me this. Do you think that might possibly happen in the life of God's people today? Do you think it's possible that there, there may be those charged with leading God's people who might be seduced into making decisions on the basis of what will make them popular or what will work, what will be politically convenient for them and help them attract and keep a crowd? Do you think that's possible? It seems to me quite possible and, and maybe even extremely likely. Designer religion has always been seducing God's people for as long as we have, we have longed to worship the true and the living God. What's the antidote? How do we ensure that, that we, don't, we don't enter into this way of operating? We don't follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam? How do we avoid being drawn into leading or participating in designer religion? The answer is simple, but far from easy. The answer is that we must trust God. Why did Jeroboam do all that stuff that he did? Jeroboam did all of that because he didn't trust God. 
Ahijah the prophet had promised him that God would give him the ten northern tribes. God himself had spoken to him and promised to bless him and to build him a dynasty if only he'd walk in God's ways. But Jeroboam didn't believe him, didn't believe God. Look back again at what he did in those verses, verse 25 and following. The first thing that he does when he comes to power is to fortify his hometown, his new hometown. He doesn't trust anyone. He's immediately on the defensive, building up defenses all around him. Doesn't trust Rehoboam, the king of Judah, with whom he's just made a truce. He doesn't seem to trust anyone. He's paranoid immediately that the people will turn against him, that they'll kill him. And it's this paranoia, this inability to trust God, to look out for him and to manage his affairs, that's what leads to his downfall. When we can't trust God to look after us, then we'll start to look after ourselves. And we'll start to take whatever steps are necessary to manage our world And if you're a leader in the church, then you'll start to take whatever steps are necessary to manage Christ's church. Friends, do you see now why a designer approach to religion and how it reveals a fear of man rather than a healthy fear of God? An unhealthy preoccupation with what people want or with, with what we think will make us successful keeps us from our primary goal, which is to worship God on the terms that he chooses. If we can learn to care more about what God thinks than people inside our congregations or outside, then and only then, I think, we can worship in spirit and truth as Jesus commanded us to. Otherwise, our worship, for all its its noise and all its all its glitter and shine may be a complete waste of time. Folks, as we read on in the the narratives, we soon see the outcome of Jeroboam's sin. That second part that we read earlier together, chapter 14, if you flick over there, you'll get a sense of, of what happened. Embedded in this story of, of Jeroboam's sick child, we get God's Verdict on, on Jeroboam's behavior. Look at verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 7. God says to Jeroboam, I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you haven't been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what's right in my eyes. You've done more evil than all who lived before you. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You've provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Jeroboam's early political reforms were all very religious. They were all about religion. At least in appearance. But God's assessment of it is that they weren't leading people into a healthy relationship with him. He led Israel 
into idolatry. Folks, idolatry, this, this worshipping anything that is not God, is the big sin. It stands in contravention of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. There's no leader in the church of Jesus Christ who can expect to meet with anything of God's blessing while he or she worships idols and invites other people to join them in doing the same. It doesn't matter how religious it appears to be. It doesn't matter how successful it is in terms of its numbers or its resources or, or, or the impression it creates, if it's not leading people into a healthy relationship with the living God, the God revealed to us in Scripture and in Jesus Christ, then it's leading people somewhere else. Let every Christian leader beware. In the final verses of our passage, those last verses of chapter 14, we see the result of Jeroboam's idolatry beyond his own life. The result is, yes, that he won't have the dynasty that God promised, but the people too will suffer. The people have willingly participated, you see, with Jeroboam in his designer religion. Look at verse 15. We're told there of the consequences for the people. The Lord will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers. He'll scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. We'll see more about Asherah poles in in future studies, but it's a, a particular and specific form of idolatry. The focus here has been all on on Jeroboam himself, but, but now it changes. The focus falls on God's people. And we learn here that God's people are never innocent bystanders if they go along with the sins of their leaders. If they tolerate and if they go along with the adulterous schemes of their leaders, they too will be judged. Each man or woman responsible for their actions and the community judged on the basis of the community's shared life. Folks, in my time here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I've tried my utmost to foster a very open relationship with my elders here and also with the folks who who participate in, in leading worship from time to time. My desire is that we work together that we help each other and hold each other accountable on these issues. There's not one of us who can be sure of the state of our own hearts at any one given moment in time. But together we can help each other to remain faithful to God's call and not to be seduced into idolatry. Folks, we don't have time this evening, or didn't have time certainly to read chapter 13, and we don't have much time to deal with the material that's recorded there. Actually, it's depressingly similar to what we've read here in chapter 14, what we've already seen, chapters 12 and 14. 
We learn there in chapter 13, and we'll skim it in a couple of minutes, that this passage demonstrates that Jeroboam is not the only one who, who fails to take God's call seriously. There's a prophet that we read about in the chapter, a so-called man of God, and he too cannot stay obedient to God's call. Feel free to skim it while I try to give you a, a very quick synopsis. We're told in chapter 13 the story of a, a man of God from Judah, a prophet. And he's sent to prophesy against Jeroboam because of these sins that we've been talking about. And he obeys that commission. He goes and he does that. And in doing it, he demonstrates God's power. So we see that God is clearly, uh, evidently at work in this guy. Now, he's been instructed by God not to take any hospitality while he's making his journey north into Israel. We're not told why that is, but it's probably the case that if you take hospitality from somebody, uh, you come under their influence. It's harder to speak a, a prophetic message to somebody when they've invited you to their dinner table and they're are pouring you a glass of wine. So there's a sense in which the prophet must keep his distance uh, to keep his prophetic edge. Probably that's what's going on. But anyway, this guy's been told he's not to take hospitality on his prophetic mission north into Israel. So as he passes judgment on Jeroboam, Jeroboam hears it and for a moment appears repentant. And, and he offers hospitality to the prophet. The prophet refuses. He tells Jeroboam, listen, I can't come because God's told me not to. And it's a good moment. At last we think, well, here's a guy who takes God's call seriously. He's acting with integrity and he's, he's obeying God's call. But then as we read on in chapter 13, an older, other prophet appears and he invites the prophet from Judah home for tea. And again, the prophet from Judah says, no, I can't. Because God's told me not to take any hospitality while I'm in Israel. I'm on my way home to Judah. But then the older prophet says, verse 18, I too am a prophet just as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Now the narrator goes on to tell us that the older prophet's lying. We learn in verse 19 that the Judean prophet returned with him, ate and drank at his house. So he, he's seduced. And he too disobeys God's call on him. Eventually as we read on, we find that this, this lying prophet pronounces a truthful judgment on this man of God from Judah. It's a judgment because this, this guy has done much the same as Jeroboam. He too has failed to obey God's call in his life and he too falls under judgment. Folks, we've already seen as we've looked at Jeroboam that it's possible for a leader of God's people to be seduced into designer worship. And we're faced here with a second question but very much related question. Is it possible for leaders in the church of Jesus Christ to be seduced from their calling to speak the word of God. And it seems to me possible again and even very likely. 
People who early in their ministry had a strong sense of God's call and a strong commitment to teaching his word and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they fall by the wayside. Perhaps, in this, perhaps as in this case, it's some older guy in the church. Someone under whose influence they fall. Someone who, who takes them away from their first passion for God's word and the gospel. Perhaps it's something else. Whatever reason, the result will always be the same. It's the result that we see here in the nation of Israel. A nation that, that falls into to gross misconduct and idolatry. This is what happens among God's people when their leaders give up their primary call. Folks, Fiona was right when she warned us that there wasn't an awful lot of joy, a lot of upbeat stuff in this passage. This is one of those times when scripture sends mostly by way of a warning, but I think, I think a warning that we want to heed and to take on board. We've seen this evening that it's possible for leaders to lose their integrity in how they lead worship and in how they, they speak God's word. So as I close this evening, I simply want to ask for you to pray. I want to ask you to pray for me and anyone else who's charged with, with preaching God's word here. That we won't be seduced from that primary and central calling. I want you to pray for all of the folks who participate in our worship leading here. Folks, it's a seductive thing to be involved in. There's always something calling you away from the simple, honest commitment to point people to, to Christ and to full obedience in Him. Believe me, you'd maybe need to try it once or twice to know the, 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 the things that can come to play. Pray for those people. But I want you to pray for yourselves. And here's why. I think in a large part, a congregation gets the preaching and the worship that it asks for. There's an element of that at play. If you can be a congregation and we can be a congregation of people together who have hearts only after God, who care for nothing more than, than worshipping him in the ways that please him. And by the way, what does that mean? That means yes, to meet here for a Sunday and to sing and to pray and to hear God's word. But it means to offer our whole lives as living sacrifices in that way that Paul talks about in Romans 12. That's the worship that pleases God. It's, it's the kind of worship that means that we care for the, the orphan and the widow the, the Old Testament prophets reminded us about that. That's the worship that pleases God. We allow God to tell us what worship is and should be. And we commit ourselves to that. Folks, let's pray for ourselves. That while it's very, very possible that, that some Parts of God's family will be seduced into wrong kinds of worship and, and losing 
their, their passion for hearing God's word, that we won't be among them. Pray for, for all of us collectively that we can keep our heart pure after God. Folks, let's pray. Let's pray that prayer just now. Father God, we imagine that when we gather at times like this and in places like this that we're safe. We've come out of the world into the place where, where we're practicing our faith and living out our religion. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see the dangers that there are even in a place and in a gathering like this. So, Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts and keep us pure. Make us people who long only to worship you in the ways that you call us to. Who who long only to hear your word. To hear it when we like hearing it and to hear it even when we don't. But to hear it because it's your word. And, Lord, help us to do all of these things because we love you. Because our hearts really are set on you. Because you're the object of our desire and the apple of our eye. Because it's you and only you that we want. Lord, we thank you that there's mercy in all of this. Lord, for those times when we have walked away from you, we pray that you'd forgive us. For any ways in which we're walking from you even now, show it to us. And call us back. Lord, keep us. Only keep us with you. Amen.